0: opposing the government and opposing the Conservatives I'm afraid it's the hard left who want to tighten their control they want to uh, sideline uh, moderate voices I don't think anybody should be surprised about that is the nature of the hard left and of course we know that the hard left famously cannot tolerate any who dissent what's well, we know who the hard left are we're in the you know ascendancy I, I, within, the, within the Labour that, that Party which. who associate with the hard left you just said to that we were right wing the hard left agenda printing money nationalising without compensation that sort of hard left wing position. Hard left the hard left to the hard left. And the hard left the hard left the hard left hard left hard left the hard left and the hard left hard left hard left the hard left. Hard left hard left hard 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 left hard left the hard left the hard left left the hard left hard left left hard left the hard left hard left 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 the hard left left hard left hard left hard left
1: Speaking of a kind of sanctimonious, moralizing, quasi religious tone, I've got something here that may be an instance of proto authenticacy. So, are you up for another round of the game?
2: Let's do it. <laughs>
1: okay. I don't know if you follow an account called Labour underscore history on Twitter, Tides of History it's called, Um, but it basically posts moments from Labour history, like on their anniversaries. It's quite clearly run by somebody with a particular set of political sympathies admittedly they're not as kind of just flagrant about their political sympathies as whatever like right-wing freak runs that jeremy corbyn in the times page which is just constantly like oh look here's jeremy corbyn (laughs) in 1988 being soft on russia (laughs) certain parallels to today but um you, you certainly get that tides of history has a particular perspective so here they post a picture of Kinnock on one side, Neil Kinnock, that is, not his pathetic son, and Tony Ben on the other, again, not his pathetic son. So, <laughs> <laughs> in the 80s, Kinnock and Ben, the tweet says, clashed over Labour opposition to Right to Buy. Ben argued, these are not the tenants' houses to buy, these are the community's houses, and Kinnock snapped... On the day when you start paying a mortgage or rent, you will have some authority (laughs) on the subject. (laughs) Isn't Um, this orthantocracy, this idea that Tony Benn, by not coming from a working-class background, has abdicated the right to advocate pro-working-class policies?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I
2: think it is a little bit, although at the same time... I probably hold some of Kinnick's reservations to some extent, but Ben, if you were Kinnick, you might have said something similar, wouldn't you? You would have been tempted to. If you were in an argument with Tony Ben about anything, you would probably pull that one out. But yeah, no, you know, I think broadly speaking, it is.
1: It's a similar argument to note the double-barrelled name. Which uh, I don't know. I don't know, uh, Trevor, <laughs> if you've ever been on the receiving end of this. What is he... <laughs> I'm, I can't. I, I mean, I can't remember oh, what yeah. bastard is joined by in in your double-barrelled surname. But you, you know, you, I know you <laughs> possibly. <laughs> to I married
3: my wife. sure. I'm a um, I took a double name for a few years um, Before we decided we didn't really like it Because we were sort of used to our omens But yeah, because that kind of, that period coincided with My sort of heavy involvement with Dulwich Hamlet And then that whole sort of hipster nonsense And then getting all these sort of like 50-year-old well-to-do football fans From the travel club members Far uh, Richard and I could ever probably dream of being Who occasionally see my my temporary double barreled
1: man. Last year I had this weird cyber stalker and they tweet about me pretty much every day. But they also sometimes tweeted about other people on left Twitter. And I definitely remember at one point they basically doxed you. They found out for existential
3: or something.
1: Yes, that's the weird yeah. fucking uh, literally called the police resistant? on Existence? Yeah, that's the one. One of
3: the funny things about... <laughs> one of the funny things about me. Being mentioned in Joe's books is so many acknowledgements for both of them. In the, <laughs> first, in the first one, in Things Without Frontiers, it's my double barreled name. And in Orphantocracy, it's me having reverted to my normal single barreled name. <laughs> and <laughs> it must still look to historians of the future that either Orphantocracy got so bad that I ditched my. One half my
0: surname.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm some sort of tragic figure who got divorced in, in between the two books being <laughs>
1: written. A bastard for the old, I old spending age. so much time qualifying
3: for acknowledgements.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I can understand Joe thinking that yeah, that's a kind of easy shot to get at Tony Benn, isn't it? But you know he's posh and doesn't actually know suffering. But I mean, it's a cheap one, you know. I, I think it, I think there's a little bit of authenticity there. However,
2: this. Well, is... it surely is. I mean, it's just done to win an argument, isn't it? And yeah. It's manipulatively so. And know. if you
1: look at the destructive legacy of Right to Buy, then I think Kinnock's grandstanding there feels a bit less potent. Yeah, certainly. So... His
3: grandstanding's got wronger and wronger over the last three decades. Oh, God. Since that law argument happens, which, you know, doesn't show in a good light, does it?
1: No, exactly i've got here let's see if we think this is authenticracy. a defence of some very very bad lyrics <laughs> okay. so i won't reveal the author <laughs> the author to this uh, well i won't say critique because it's so positive i know obviously critique can decide something is good but but yeah this this appraisal of a set of Liam Gallagher lyrics from his single Chinatown.
4: Well the cops are taking over while everyone's in yoga. Cause happiness is still a warm gun. What's it to be free man? What's a y-
1: So, the author <laughs> the, the author states that if they didn't have to finish their book, they would give the person they're talking to 2,000 <laughs> words on why the lyrics in question are actually good. Uh, now, Liam Gallagher in Chinatown sings, the cops are taking over while everyone's in yoga, happiness is still a warm gun. What's it to be free, man? And this is kind of Liam, you know, uh, commenting on the the age of Brexit. You know, he says, What's it to be free, man? What's a European? Me, I just believe in the sun. (laughs) And the author of I thought uh, they were good lyrics. Yeah. Yes. Well, I mean, I think we're giving the game away there a little bit. But (laughs) but anyway, they quote, "Happiness is still a warm gun. The still is good in two ways. It emphasizes two related continuities since that line was first written." two continuities are number one the sadomasochism attached to state violence and number two the use of culturally appropriated ideas of good living here yoga to obscure this so is to be free man to proceed in bad faith in this good living um sorry i lost my place or to be free in the conditional sense permitted by the state And isn't Europeanism just a conflation of these two forms of bad faith? Fuck, I've lost my place again. Uh, Therefore, (laughs) the flippant Believe in the Sun line is ironic. Tips bucket hat. (laughs) Is this authenticocracy? Or have we established that in fact the centrist dad might consider these lyrics to be reflective of vulgar cultural preferences and, in yeah, fact, rejects. Centrist
2: dad wouldn't like those lyrics at all. I think they think they were really bad. they they tell jokes about how, how bad they are and, and offer up uh, Jarvis, because he's always just Jarvis as an example of a, a good lyricist from the Britpop
1: era. I thought you meant Dan Jarvis for a second.
2: No, no. <laughs> His latest right. set of lyrics in the New
1: Statesman, fantastic. <laughs> Mr. Cocker. <laughs> I mean, musically, Stephen Malcolmus, I believe, was a fan of your book, or at least he <laughs> he retweeted I hope he is. an extract from it. I hope he went out and bought it as well. Are you a Pavement fan?
2: I do quite like Pavement, yeah, yeah. And sort of only having rediscovered them a little bit over the last few years, I think I disavowed them for a long time under some kind of over-theorised belief that kind of 1990s American lo-fi was all bad for some reason. Because it was deliberately sloppy, I think. I think I was trying to show off in front of I don't know Owen or someone. <laughs> uh, I, was, I was trying to get in the in the good books of the repeated consensus about what what is good and bad music, um, oh, and God, then I, yeah. I realised I do like Pavement.
1: Yeah, because I, I think maybe Juliet hates Pavement as well. I think possibly at least I have that Gosh. in my head. Sorry, Juliet, if I've mischaracterised your views on Pavement. I don't think I <laughs> ever had a Pavement song. You want, know, darling, that you go and cut your hair if you think it's gonna make him change. Are you,
2: um, Jack? Do you recall uh, Ruth and Martin's album club?
1: I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, um, I recall Tim Farron's entry on N.W.A. in particular.
2: Do do you think that you could maybe revive the format, but use different people and different guests? And you hope you have Trevor Bastard listens to uh, Wowie Zowie.
1: Oh, shit. Yeah, that would be good. I'd I'd enjoy listening to Trevor get the hang of those stoned out grooves on that record. Because
2: I think Ruth and Martin's album club was was the beginning, was the the kind of like the, the murky origins of so much current political and cultural idiocy. <laughs> I remember it's, it, they presented all of these people as celebrities, didn't they? It was like a million episodes. Of who's on next week? Which important celebrity is going to come on to discuss why they've never heard the Jesus and Mary chain? Oh, it's someone who once wrote one article for the New States. <laughs> oh, wow, They're important. I'm looking forward to hearing their opinions on Psycho candy.
1: Oh god, yeah. It's always like I remember there being a lot of dodgy centrist types in there, like David. Yeah. Oh fuck, Aronovich did one. I know David Quantick did, who's absolutely fucking terrible. Another one from that nineties comedy school of slightly bemused cynicism.
2: He's a terrible person. He was sitting behind me in the pub on uh, the twenty fifteen general election night. In fact, I recall um, before I went home to cry. No, I just remember looking around and thinking that's that's David Quantick.
1: Oh, it took me a second to realise he said 2015, so I... I, Yeah. Yeah, he might have been miserable in 2015, but I mean, (laughs) so was I. (laughs) So, yeah.
3: David Quantic was in a bed on the set of one of the most 90s programmes ever recorded, which was the Election Night Armistice from
1: 1997, which was... Oh, shit, yeah. Was that... Did Iannucci do the armistice?
3: Yeah, Iannucci, they did, like, the Friday and Saturday night armistice. Which i watched religiously as a 15, 14 year old, um, but they did an election night special. And it's David Quantic in a bed with someone, maybe Julie virtual, I don't know.
2: That sounds definitely possible, doesn't it? <laughs> I don't know did she, did she Did she do that I can't remember I think she's too famous
1: Maybe I, 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 I don't know Maybe hey, got Tim I'm tempted to get the, I, I
2: want to get the whole list In front of me now And see if I can do that
1: I've never actually Maybe you should do A
3: podcast Where I have never Listened to this Album podcast Listen to the album, this Podcast for the first time And say well <laughs> <laughs> a lines, the I'm just going to
1: get it
2: up there Oh my god, you know they had a book? They released a book
1: <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah, I, th- I think I remember seeing that I was like, oh these guys are sold out, man Books, what the fuck are they? Yeah, hold on, hold on. Here
2: we go. <laughs> Ian Rankin on Madonna Richard Osman on Roxy Music These are the most famous people they have The best people, J.K. Rowling on Violent Femmes
1: Oh, that's uh, not surprising
2: mm-hmm. Tim Farron on NWA, and here is perhaps my personal
1: favorite.
2: (laughs) Chris Addison on Marvin
0: Gaye.
1: Oh my god. (laughs) Like, there's some some serious melts there. I reckon there's probably. I mean, JK Rowling's on there. (laughs) Yeah, I reckon that they've probably had, like, possibly double figures in the amount of turfs they've had had on Ruth and Martin's album club that's purely a guess but wouldn't surprise me oh hold on we've got one here Jack we've got uh, Hadley Freeman oh fucking hell I'm slanted and enchanted by (laughs) a hell pavement again they got Peter Hitchens listening to the fucking kinks village Uh-oh. green presentation <laughs> society
3: Peter Hitchens hadn't heard, heard the kinks before that's pretty um, on brand isn't it yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, hold on yeah, oh, yeah. It to have been the prime market for the kinks at the time and was too busy doing God knows what Peter Hitchens does mostly not doing things
2: that's his shtick isn't it it's a extreme kind of forgoal of the pleasures of the liberated age
1: yeah they have the guy who does Ed Miliband's podcast with him listening to Good Kid Mad City by Kendrick Lamar. <laughs>
2: I just found out, I think I conclusively proved all my points about so-called centrist Stars with Chris Addison's top three albums, uh, The Queen Is Dead, A Sugar Cubes Album, it's the sugar cubes, on That really does it for me. There you go. These people aren't in the Shed Seven. They're in the sugar cubes and McCarthy. Oh,
1: fuck, oh, Maca- a McCarthy on there.
2: McCarthy aren't mentioned. No, I just think it kind of that, yeah. that's the sort of music that Chris Addison. A- any
4: thinking. relation to the
1: senator? <laughs> <laughs> I think might have be been ironically named after him, but I'm I'm not sure. That's um, why he was a sure. They were quite a left-wing band. Uh, although I think there maybe both, some, I some awful centrist
3: who was mentioning liking McCarthy in the last year. I can't help but feel they So We Are All boys Run out. Seriously.
1: Isn't there a McCarthy song about, like, the great bomb or something? You know, we emphasise the peaceful strength of our nuclear weapons, whatever that merry TV line is. You know, I, I, I have a feeling that there is a kind of weird... New loving leftism going on and that, not their singer, because I've been corrected when I previously stated but somebody affiliated with McCarthy, maybe their guitarist or something has gone on to become like a weird, spiked LM network contrarian.
2: I think that it was Leticia Sadie wasn't the singer from Stereolab, so Tim Game from McCarthy's later and, and more successful band who has maybe advanced a few spiked positions but has actually maybe come back from that a bit, but they were always a band of kind of interested in the theoretical left but I think potentially in a, in a slightly Matt Boltony way sometimes oh, fucking so,
1: hell
2: <laughs> I've just found just one more from Ram Album Club week 47 in the aeroplane over the sea by a Neutral Milk Hotel guest listener HRT BPS
1: oh my god
3: <laughs> <laughs> what, top draw talent <laughs>
1: I don't, don't, don't want to my you know
3: live all your show yeah probably the best not to yeah. but, oh interesting choice <laughs>
2: <laughs> isabel Hyman listens to elvis presley <laughs> oh my god sorry i'm, I'm ruining your podcast but no I, no not at, at all,
0: <laughs> all. There's, some,
1: there's some real hell stuff in there actually it might be funny doing a podcast on the ram album club at some point because it would combine my loves of music and and, and terrible centrist politics it's
2: no real, real it's no real, real. it's no real, real.
1: Don't want to keep you guys all night but I was wondering if we could wrap up with a word on grainy hard bullet reality and the linked concept of bullock signaling. <laughs>
2: That episode should really have come at the beginning of the book, I think. In, in a better structured book that was written in a space of time occupying maybe more than three months, I might have moved that forward in, in the structure. But the whole thing was written in a kind of manic state. Of the last <laughs> summer, I just knew I had to get it done, I don't know if I've ever been for a public about this before, but the book initially was discussed and proposals were worked through with another publisher who... I should never have listened to the ministrations of another publisher in the first place, but to cut a short, long story short, they wasted my time and thereby ate up an enormous amount of time that I could have been taken writing the book. Mm-hmm. And I got to all oh, right, so this book isn't going to happen now. And I thought, well, you know, I've done so much thinking about it. I should probably still write it. So I... I went to a repeater who very, very kindly let me back like a dog kind of walking through the door with its tail between its legs and wrote it very quickly and said, look, I've got to do this now and get it written by the end of the year. So structurally, it's it's got some some weird bits which people in good reading had no small amount of fun pointing to
4: it does give it a bit of an organic sort of flow to it I found yeah that's definitely one way of putting it <laughs> an organic flow yeah
1: I like that
4: but uh, yeah it's, it, it
2: could have done with, with a bit of more engineering perhaps but the episodes at the end of the book where if you've read it you'll know what has been talked about here but if you've not read it a, a music journalist a former music journalist who was a, a kind of big cheese in 90s London Taylor Parks goes out for some reason and I'm going to be restrained here because it was written for the quietest which is a publication I've written a lot for and I get on with Luke who has edited me there but I found that piece fundamentally bizarre and I don't really know what authority he had to be making the point so he goes out to Chelmsford is it? Castleton somewhere somewhere in, in Essex he goes out to a Corbyn mm. rally and says that it's all very nice being a kind of woolly, woolly jumper sandal wearer who, who likes this kind of thing but actually you know there's some nasty people out here and in, in his terms grainy hard bollocked reality and some of them might even want to hurt us or, or something along those lines and Jeremy Corbyn's I, I can't remember the exact it was a really really overdone and egregious piece of
1: writing goes i'm no hawk doesn't he but i'm no hawk i'm no hawk but i am a hawk yeah Uh, exactly (laughs) i'm no hawk but transforms into fucking into one of the nine yorkshiremen of the apocalypse jabbing his finger at the prospect (laughs) of some idiot from iran would
0: you allow north korea or some idiot in iran to bomb us and then say, oh, we better start talking. You'll be too
2: late. He's been telling us that at all costs we must vote for Labour in 2015 in a a certain internet argument. But, uh, yeah, he goes and and does this about Corbyn. It's a whole idea that there are dangerous people in the world. Well, I I hadn't noticed, Taylor. I hadn't noticed that the world is dangerous at this moment in time.
1: Yeah, he says uh, (laughs) some of them, get this, are even nastier than Tony Blair. Oh, and then there's a superb authentic bit. And even if you leave them all alone, they will not stop. Not for all the tea in Islington North.
2: That was it, yeah. That's
1: it. (laughs) Tea fucking uh, middle there, yep, yep. Yeah. Reminds me of that weird piece BuzzFeed's Alex Wickham wrote for Breitbart a few years ago about the Emily Thornberry white van incident where she got sacked for posting a picture of a white van. Mm. And and, and, and uh, Alex Wickham ends his piece rather sort of hysterically with, uh, the blood of the martyrs will water the meadows of Islington. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the juxtaposition of the kind of the, the terrifying kind of outsider threat with the sort of middle class, effetness of Islington. Because Taylor Parks, I think, lived in the
3: Islington North constituency,
1: uh, mm-hmm. or
3: at least for our area. Like how can he be so blind to the material mm-hmm. reality of what is a very poor area? Mm. It's also probably a very rich area as well. But now with um, very high child poverty. Great
1: variety, yeah. <laughs> it's one of the most unequal places in the country, yeah, especially Islington North, I think. And Joe in the book, references a piece by a friend of the show, Jude Wanger, that she wrote in New Socialist, where she points this out, and, mm. and how Islington is used as this kind of byword for the out-of-touch middle-class left, but actually that there's piece areas is dead of, good, yeah. of extreme deprivation there.
3: Something that's really struck me having moved from Illinois London to Belfast is how
1: Belfast is
3: kind of like much more middle-class. Because middle-class life is more attainable, largely, I guess, because of housing costs and how inner London was just very, very stark between rich and poor. Mm. It's just made me angrier about the way some of the, most, some of the poorest and most oppressed people in this country in inner London, the poor people of inner London, that just sort of swept under the carpet. Yeah, definitely.
1: You wanted to talk, Joe, about the aesthetics of authentocracy. And I think we have a bit, especially in relation to music and comedy. But I find the bit in your book about Daniel Craig's James Bond... Being the authentocrat, Bond, you know uh, mm. this kind of pub brawler style of fighting, and <laughs> The Dark Knight rises. No, sorry, not The Dark Knight. Uh, Batman Begins, kind of set, yeah. setting the tone for authentocrat superheroes, and this kind of uh, feeding into the a, grittiness. Uh, yeah, is exactly. The gritty and, gritty and, and the around. grainy. Mm. You know, a lot of value is put in the gritty and the grainy in this. Particular Which always means moment.
4: like this a certain thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Psychological yeah. torture for king and country, you know. Mm.
2: It's yeah, kind of. This is going to hurt you more than it, me. That more than it hurts you, isn't it? That, that Daniel Craig <laughs> is, is the punished, masochistic Bond, who, who who's on, upon whose body all of our sins will be kind of marked out. Um, definitely you now. I know it's not very realistic, but I would rather have Pierce Brosnan fighting space
1: lasers <laughs> 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 if, if I have to choose between the two. I don't think I actually saw the last one, but I saw the previous three James Bond films no. with, with Daniel Craig. And I swear at the start of every single one of them, he's like depressed, practically drinking himself mm. into an early grave, like physically and mentally scarred, thinking he wants to get out of, uh, out of the game. And it's just kind of like, uh, that, that it's like some, somebody went, hey man, wouldn't it be like... Really dark to be James Bond, or like, hey, wouldn't it be like a bit fucked up to be Batman? Bond, James Bond.
0: Cinema
3: has this complete inability to strike. Any sort of middle ground yeah. between you know, the preposterous here. Oh yes, I
4: was just going to say time. about the point that you make in the book about forced realism is not very realistic. Yeah, uh, that yeah. was as an int and it had me thinking about all kinds of films and books that you didn't even mention, just like mm. this idea of realism.
1: Can you think of any offhand?
0: I
4: don't not want to know about the books.
2: I mean, there are lots of authors who, whose work is described as, as realists who do patently unrealistic things, but it doesn't necessarily make their books bad. So I, I think about, about Zola. You know, Zola is one of my favourite <coughs> 19th century authors, definitely. He's a kind of significant naturalist. And Germinal, which is his kind of novel of a mining disaster or a strike followed by a mining disaster, sort of the spoiler, is really kind of brilliantly kind of grand guinol unrealistic it's like east enders or something people die yeah, on every right, page right. at the same time that doesn't make it a, a bad book and, and hardy is one of my favorite authors as well and he, he's someone who's whose realism is constantly collapsing into contrivance but again his, mm. his, his writing is wonderful but their failures of realism or their lapses of realism for me are not pernicious in the way that you see in the daniel Gray bonds because they don't by a sense of realism in this kind of sacrificial way, that I think so. In, in the Craig Bonds, you know, that the index for realism is always how brutal is the thing that happens to a female character, which is the same so, as yeah. I, I yeah. think in, in, in Game of Thrones as well, actually, you know, like a kind of pornographic misogyny becomes the kind of currency of realism and I don't see that as being what the other you know, the nineteenth century realists did what they need to answer for, i. e. using lots of coincidence is a much less bad crime. You know, I don't you know, I don't care that Dickens this forces coincidence all over the place, but I do care that
4: of course, yeah. It's part of the suspension of disbelief, but
3: the, yeah. there's different ways you can use it. Yeah. When I was reading *Of and I'm reading about *Game of Thrones* in it. It sort of really made me feel uncomfortable about the fact Belfast has this very visible *Game of Thrones* tourism and sells itself as, you know, a filming location mm-hmm. *Game of Thrones*, alongside the fact it sells itself as, you know, the city that built the Titanic. <laughs> and, and, yeah. Like, like these are their two weird <coughs> ways of sort of trying to rebrand the city. <laughs>
1: Yeah, Could you keep talking about like movies and stuff for a second with the guys while I just run to the loo and then we can finish up? Because I just I've got one more question, but yeah, but, I, I, <laughs> okay, but yeah. I'm I, I'm at this point too distracted by needing a peeve to uh, awesome. to um, we... Thank <laughs> yes, you Yes, keep, Thank keep you going.
2: I, <laughs> I, no, I'd right like to, I I I want to hear more about works which are doing the kind of authenticatic moves in terms of reality building. Because I see it all over the place, and I think, do I want to write more about this, or do I want to kind of chase these works down a bit more, if you had any in mind?
4: It pervades popular culture. It's everywhere. Like, you make a point about how in the 90s, violence had very little repercussions, and then suddenly we had to have everybody doing violence get their version of PTSD or Mm. whatever. The troubled character who has to be violent. You see it in every superhero film. You well, see it yeah. in like every Western film, really. <laughs> the films of Tarantino, to an extent, here and there. Um,
2: Tarantino is interesting because, he, for me, the 90s films are kind of the opposite. That's like utterly consequence-free co- comic ironic hmm. violence. And Maybe so in his, his, his later ones, he's kind of bought into something else. I haven't really seen the last couple. But for me, definitely, the superhero films, the superhero reboot films, I just give totally give up. Uh, yeah. I can't deal with it. Is it it's I don't want to go and see you know, X Men nine hundred and seventy three to learn surprise, surprise that one of the X Men had a dark uh, upbringing you No know, really? Yeah. I can't work that out from the other nine hundred and seventy two films.
4: You, you see it in every review for oh the new superhero film is so dark and gritty and it mm. defies standards and uh, it's so progressive in this way and that way and it's like it's it's just No, no, they're not.
2: I was trying to find a beginning point for that, and I I wondered if the Nolan Batman films were a bit of a a kind of Uh, game game changer there.
4: Before Mm. that, you only really had Spider-Man, and you could see elements of what would go into Batman Begins, I think. But it really fully formed in Batman Begins, and then the Dark Knight crystallized it, in my opinion. Yeah,
2: yeah, definitely. And and the kind of linking thing as well is going to be 9-11. What links it back to the kind of orthodoxy and politics? The post-9-11 world. world is is the authentic world and in a way it's this, this week you know we must take things seriously now we must have legitimate concerns and um
4: we can't be idealistic we gotta, we gotta accept certain realities
1: I don't know if somebody said while I was out the room but uh the Daniel Craig Bond films were obviously made in the shadow of a Jason Bourne franchise
0: yeah, um, yeah. oh
1: yes yeah. which is utterly humorless <laughs> and um but, I mean I think they're better movies oh no I think, I think they're great yeah. they're, they're, they're great fun but they're <laughs> You know, they are grainy and hard bollocked to an extreme. It's James Bond
4: without any of the fun. yeah, like,
1: yeah but
4: they are enjoyable films, absolutely.
1: I, I find it big. funny that on the fourth one, which was the one that came out a couple of years ago. But, oh, that
2: like... was crazy. That... Oh, it's... hold on, is that the Jeremy, what's his name one? Or the, uh,
1: the no, fifth no. One? This Vincent is the one Statham. with. Yeah, or... n- no, not oh, Jason Statham. Jason <laughs> <the> fourth... <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I mean, I. I give it a go he was good in spy so yeah maybe <laughs> but uh no no it was yeah the one that came out like in 2016 that reunited paul greengrass with matt damon there was this kind of like oh it's all kicking off everywhere cyber security is the real concern now thing and sure enough um paul mason was an advisor on the fourth well, matt damon i didn't board know film.
2: that i didn't yeah. know that
1: yeah there that's you go. amazing It's it's fucking hilarious.
2: It's one Uh, of the drunkest films I've ever seen.
1: (laughs) If it's really important to you
0: to have a pro-Remain party that is in favour of illegal war, in favour of privatisation, form your own party and get on with it. Let me take another
2: round of questions. It's it's a really stupid film. The the, the last 20 minutes (laughs) are.
4: Like Paul Mason. Have you seen Swordfish?
2: Uh, <laughs> no, no, I've not
3: seen Swordfish.
4: No, no, no I never do. Really. I don't know what the moral is of that film at all. It doesn't make sense.
3: Paul Mason was an advisor on a Bourne film. Yeah. <laughs> That's like Stan Collymore being in base <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, I I could see the touch of Mason's Stoyer come to Athens the revolution is happening (laughs) uh, kind of philosophy in the scene at the end, which I believe is set in Athens, where there's the huge anti-austerity protest but also the fascists are out there in the protest, and everyone's like there's like war on the streets and the bad guys are going after Jason Bourne and it's, uh, I think that might be the completely insane last 20 minutes that Joe was talking about, Mm. or that that, that would Was like Mason. There's some stuff
2: with a car as well.
1: Yeah, that was Mason all through. We shouldn't be surprised that Paul Greengrass has certain kind of Labour Party sort of leanings because he did direct the uh, seminal short film Ed Miliband a Portrait in, in 2015. <laughs> <laughs> I feel that the last four and
0: a half years have been leading up to this moment. I've thought deeply about how the country needs to change, we've developed the policies, the program, and now I feel ready. I feel ready to offer myself as Prime Minister.
1: Yeah, yeah, you remember Ed Miliband, a portrait, don't you? I am ready I never to... saw it! Oh no, I watched no. a you for that episode we did on Party Political Broadcast. Dude. It's the one where Ed Miliband is like, I am ready to offer myself to Britain. Oh, God! Yeah! yeah, like he's talking yeah, yeah, about yeah, yeah, himself yeah, yeah. Like, like he's some kind of sacrificial lamb.
3: That's the exact voice of Miliband. Has. I am it's the
4: famous. messiah. <laughs> <laughs> Ed Miller Messiah. Well, in the
1: Millerverse. In the Millerverse. Yeah, Trevor, do you remember we set up an account called the Oweniverse, which was an yeah. alternative universe where Owen Smith became Labour leader. And we, <laughs> we, we did one tweet on it, and then they announced the general election. Yeah. <laughs> and we never updated it again. Sad. was kicked off by the election. Oh well, um okay, that we've sort of returned to Labour politics. So one final question for Joe. Do you think that the current Labour leadership and the current approach of the party risks falling into autocratic pitfalls because you talk about your worries in that area what you think of the challenges facing the party in the final chapter of Authentocrats would yeah, you say definitely. since the book you've become more convinced of that
2: I do go through the motions about once a week when I feel totally exhausted by communism or aspects of it and certainly there are times when the kind of cluster of how should we Put it, gilded people around Corbyn do just really inane things. I'm trying to remember what was the tweet about football by a certain uh, bodybuilding. Um... <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know the tweet in question. I, I think I know who you're talking about.
3: Trevor. I can't, I can't remember. There was.
1: Was it from the Streatham Rovers' bodybuilding wing?
3: <laughs> it was someone with a track record of quite weird, Labour-right MP-esque football analogies. It was dreadful. It was
2: it was totally misunderstanding. A kind of turn a phrase that any football fan would know the meaning of, and then doubling down on it when he got challenged, and then saying something like, what well, don't you like kind of like good working class football chats?
1: <laughs> and now, Trevor Bastard's Chukarumuna. Let me
3: explain it to you. In bloody simple terms that you might bloody well understand. Yeah, it's time for a football analogy. You like football, do you? Well, listen to this. Corbyn has lined up a 25-yard free kick and accidentally gone at it with his bloody elbow like a fucking cunt. And I go... Jesus Christ, I just can't bloody believe it!
2: Just... Please,
3: how,
1: how, how? Self-respect. So you worry that Corbyn's media outriders, or at least some of them, are displaying autocratic tendencies. But also, do you worry about Labour in policy terms in this regard too?
2: Yes, certainly. I, I think that, you know, there's been things I've been moaning about over the last month or so. I mean, when more border these These aren't going to be accurate renditions of current corporate policies beyond my two two hour lectures given deep today, plus a, mil, a million other things. So, um, but, you know, more border guards, more police. Uh, Is this
1: one of the two hour lectures? No. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't, don't worry Joe, you're not lecturing us. It's been it's been I've, a very I've, done, nice I've
2: job. done two hours on Wuthering Heights and, and, and two hours on AltaSer today, so um
1: <laughs> <laughs> And then moving on to like Oasis and Batman Begins. <laughs>
2: yeah, these are all my favourite topics. Um... <laughs>
1: and the Ram Album Club.
2: The Ram Album <laughs> <I don't... laughs> Club I would like to think that was the high point of this. That, uh, yeah, I think that copanism often finds itself trying to triangulate now. And there's a, a point with kind of euphoric version of copanism where it all starts to feel like 1996 to me.
0: Oi! There are seven people in this room tonight who are giving a little bit of hope to young people in this country. That is me, our kid, Bonehead. Wigsey, Alan White, Alan McGee, and Tony Blair. And if you'd all got anything about you, you get up there and
2: you say Tony Blair's hand, man. The man. The people. I sound like a withered veteran. I was 14 and 15 in 1996, but I remember that feeling that there was kind of inevitable change coming. But it was really a kind of nominal change because mm. once that they had that kind of like propulsion, and this is kind of one of the themes of, of the book. Once they had that sort of anti-Tory energy. They could do anything.
1: Including Tory stuff.
2: Including a lot of Tory stuff,
1: yeah. Um, what, what's that tweet that's like, uh, I'm forever grateful to my hero, Tony Blair, for saving me from the monstrous policies of my other hero, John Major? <laughs> <laughs> Who tweeted that? I can't remember, otherwise I would credit them, because it was a good tweet. Mm.
2: Was it one of your 797 parody accounts? <laughs> <laughs>
1: I've lost track of them. I've literally lost the passwords. It's like Streatham Pest Control or something. Some <laughs> minor figure in the Trevor Bastard extended universe. Streatham Hedges. Um... <laughs> it was the second tweet on the Oweniverse account. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, I mean, I think we've had a good chat. There's things that we haven't managed to touch on, really, like dinner party racists, the idea of Dan Jarvis, whether John Harris is the kind of high priest of orthantocracy. We came to this neck of the woods to make a film about the UK Independence Party and the issue of immigration. But I think we've we've got through, (laughs) you know, a lot of stuff. Yeah, it's been a nice chat. Where's Streeting's ridiculous McDonald's fucking fiasco, which was uh, a some someone described to me as McDonald's thing was particularly egregious. An affiliated trade union tries to recruit low paid workers and scab cunts like Streeting sided with the fucking employer. Which was, yeah, when, when he wrote a New Statesman article <laughs> about how uh, Labour banning McDonald's from their conference was just the worst kind of virtue signalling. Mm. How dare they? Not
2: bollock signalling, though? No, it was definitely both, <laughs> I think, in, in, in that case. Yeah, I think, you know, we, we can't afford to ignore reality. People in reality like McDonald's.
1: It was bizarre. Absolutely bizarre. I mean, I, I, yeah, I have so much I could say about Wes Streeting there that it was just, it was just absurd. But I feel like I've probably said it all before on my show. If not, I'm sure you'll say it in time. Yeah, I'll say it again. <laughs> 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 the next time Wes Streeting does something really annoying, which will be like, soon as I log off. But yeah, Joe, like, is there anything else you'd like to say on the subject of Uh Trevor, is there anything that you would like to add? It's been great to have both of you on.
2: No, no, it's, it's been it's been a lot of fun. I feel there was probably lots of other things I wanted to say. and I feel like I, I haven't quite joined the dots between Ram Album and Club and, uh, and what I was getting at. But, it's, <laughs> but those dots are there. If you ever want to do an episode which is a close reading of an episode of Ram Album Club, I'd be happy to come on to do that.
1: <laughs> oh, that's a really good idea, actually. Write <laughs> <laughs> it on the list, yeah. <laughs> yes. Mr. Bastard, anything from you?
3: I just want to say it's been a pleasure to be on the show, and I want to end with fact that the noted wit, Quentin Chris, once <laughs> said, life was a funny thing which happened to me on the way to the grave, and I'd like to say... Appearing on Real politic has been a funny thing that happened to me on the way to the grave.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> 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 it's We've always seen ourselves as being on the way to people's graves, so that, that <laughs> that's, that's really touching sure. to hear that.
2: No, it's Halloween next week. It, it, Tra- Trevor gets interesting around Halloween. Um, <laughs>
1: Ooh. Halloween's
3: a proper thing in, in Northern Ireland.
2: I guess because... Um, like you're not allowed to go out of the house and you have to stay in <laughs> with your etiquette
3: books. <laughs> but, but they're really into it. You know, people keep asking us, you know, what is my dress about? At the school, there's lots of Halloween things. and I guess it's because they don't have Guy Fawkes Night, because that oh, might be yeah. slightly... And so they go big in for Halloween. And of course, yeah, we have... So uh, they have the 12th, <laughs> which is like Guy <laughs> Fawkes Night on steroids, literally in some cases.
2: Well, I, I'm obviously in Lewis now So we have Guy folks night on the stairs I, I went to Lewis It was, uh,
3: quite, it was impressively Total you
2: know. I'm, I'm a bit frightened, I'm a bit worried about What's, what's going to happen to my rented house
3: <laughs> It's only rented you
2: know. Yeah, but yeah. I should live in it
3: <laughs> yeah, Get out, you'll be fine
2: <laughs> Anyway Thank you for having me on. I, I really should go and uh, go and go to bed now. <laughs> yeah, thanks
4: yeah.
2: for trouble. But cheers, cheers, yeah, and, and cheers, Jack, and, and good to speak to you, uh, Trevor. Yeah,
3: nice to speak to your disembodied voice as well. Reminds me of old times. Reminds me of editing our old podcast.
1: It's been great to have both of you on and to to hear your disembodied voices. And it's been great to talk to you as well, Yair, just because we haven't recorded in a little while. So it's nice for me to talk to Yair as well. And yeah, comrades, that was Joe Kennedy and Trevor Bastard. Bye bye. Bye bye. You've been listening to Real Politics.
4: It's exciting, it's young
3: people, it's crowdsourcing.